Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, which takes me to this week, in which I get to examine not one of Stephen King's books, but one of his most widely known movies, the star-turning experience that provided Kathy Bates a well-deserved Oscar win, the nonstop thrill ride of Rob Reiner's return to the world of Stephen King. Rob Reiner, who had created Castle Rock Entertainment as a tribute to the author, and who had spectacularly delivered the body to the screen as Stand By Me, and here he does the same for King's ultimate statement of fandom, and that, of course, is 1990s Misery. As adaptations go, this one is up there. It was nominated for awards, it made a star out of Kathy Bates, it reminded us that uh, James Kahn's skill set is certainly spectacular, and that Rob Reiner was more than just a meathead. It's a lean, tight thriller that keeps us as trapped in our seats as Paul to his bed, and has probably one of the most famous scenes from any movie, period. Now, before I get any further, I would like to I'm sorry, read a, uh, <clears throat> a couple reviews that just showed up on iTunes uh, a few days ago. So, um, thank you um, to the, the following people who uh, decided to, to just write these reviews and, and take time out of their busy lives to just uh, help me out here. So um, this one says, only listened to a few eps so far, but I already, already very much enjoyed this podcast, loved the revival review. I liked how this got bumped up to the top, didn't have to wait, and I think it's a cool idea to review the movies along with the novels. Really enjoyed the analysis of Revival and Gunslinger. Host seems to have a literary background, and looking forward to what's next. A great companion for any constant reader. So thank you. That's um, Stuvie Pox. Stuvie Pox, uh, thank you so much. And the next one is Can't Miss for SK Fans. I absolutely love this podcast. Love your insights into the books and movies. My fave part of each episode is the Kingisms, but I wish you would all, I'm sorry, I wish that you would add a short section on Easter eggs since all of his works are connected, which um, I just, I, I took this into account um, and it will first appear in the Tommyknockers review. My favorite podcast moment is your dog snoring in the Shining movie episode. Gave me the giggles and reminds us that you do the podcast in your free time because you love SK not for any other reason uh, than to help expand the fandom. Keep it up. Thank you. And uh, my dogs, uh, one more so than, than the other, um, is determined to become the official co-host of the Stephen King cast. She's the more uh, demanding one. Of the, of the two. Um, but thank you both for writing in. And anyone else out there, um, I don't know how you consume the podcast. I don't know if you go through Stitcher or SoundCloud. I don't know if you go to the Podbean site. Uh, but if you go to iTunes and subscribe um, and, and write a review, it really would help out uh, really getting the, the word of the Stephen King cast out there to expand the, the listener base because it 
with every uh, subscription and every review, it just it bumps it up um, in search engines and the library listing. So that would really help me out. Anyway, uh, back to Misery. I am going to just, as I've done with all the other movie reviews, I'm going to just you know read my my commentary, my my running thoughts as the as the movie plays out. So. Castle Rock Entertainment logo, it just flashes across the scene, a screen, and for any, you know, Stephen King fan, it's it's as cool as the Marvel Studios production lo- logo at the beginning of, um, you know, whether it be Iron Man or Thor, or any of the Marvel movies, or the DC flip for the, um, you know, Batman and, and Man of Steel, and um, soon to be coming up, uh, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, but just seeing that, it's such a nice... Uh, um, not tribute, but just an acknowledgement that you're about to get something that's made by people that 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 love the, the the source material. So we begin not with the painful aftermath of the car crash the way that the novel started, but as Paul Sheldon finishes his novel, it's an untitled work, unlike his book counterpart, which titled the manuscript Fast Cars. With the book complete, we get the post-novel celebration of a cigarette and a bottle of champagne, which I'm glad that Rob Reiner uh, and writer William Goldman include up front because it comes around uh, at the end of the, the movie as well. We then see him cruising through the winding Colorado roads. Now, it's great to see in The Shining, and it's great to see here. You can read about it and imagine it all you want, but until you see the dangers that come with these roads, you know, the imagination sometimes can't do reality justice. As the snow begins to fall, you become very aware of how windy those roads actually are. And when Paul grabs a hold of his manuscript, you see how much it matters to him. It tells us so much about the character. Seconds later, the car crashes, and while the wind blows cold snow onto our overturned car, that's when the screen devilishly reads, directed by Rob Reiner. Because the novel took place inside Paul's head, we were able to get information naturally. Now, we don't have that luxury here, so while Paul's car is overturned, we get a flashback to a meeting with Lauren Bacall, his agent, and in the conversation, we learn about the success of the Misery novels and his dreams of freeing himself from that genre. As he talks about what he'd like to see on his tombstone, Reiner cleverly cuts back to his car, which he is then rescued from. There's blood, but it doesn't look that bad. Uh, I'm not a proponent of gore if it doesn't fit or if it's not needed, but I think there was an opportunity here for him to be messed up because in the book, um, Paul is messed up. And then we meet Annie, expertly portrayed by the always top-notch Kathy Bates, who looks so young in this movie. You know, present day Kathy Bates, I mean, she now carries this this gravitas. You know, she has a real regal stature about her. And then with this Annie, you know, despite the fact that she's our villain and we see how dangerous she is, I mean, 1990 Kathy Bates has this vulnerability that I just don't think has that she has now. And her voice, you know, soft and kind, is a perfect way to meet this character who comes across as a much more pleasant and sweet than her novel counterpart, who was almost immediately characterized by her insanity. We then see how mangled Paul's legs are, and we need to see them that way uh, to, to know that they're not just broken, but thoroughly destroyed. Now, again, while I don't measure up to the level of destruction from the book, uh, it's still effective. 
And then Reiner holds the scene. There's this this one particular moment where he's uh, he uh, Paul Paul's in bed, and and Reiner holds the scene for a moment before cutting back to New York, holding the camera on Paul. Not only shows Paul's immobility, but gives us a reference shot of the room. It's important that we have the opportunity to soak it in because we're going to be spending so much time with it. We need to feel that we are there with him, that we know that room inside and out. Now, Reiner and company made the decision to deviate from the novel in the sense that the book focused only on the interaction between Paul and Annie. Any interruptions came from excerpts from either Fast Cars or Misery's Return. Maybe they decided that they didn't want to stretch the story or make the audience get restless by containing the film to just one location with only two characters. Now, on one hand, I think audiences today would accept it because forcing us to remain in the room with Paul would only cause us to empathize with him that much more, and the sense of claustrophobia would only reinforce the tensions of the story itself. Think about the episode of Breaking Bad entitled Fly, which can be, you know, it was just one hour between two characters in the meth laboratory. You know, single location stories can be done. It might drag at times, and the lack of diversity might result with an at times grueling experience, but it can be done. Now, with that said, I completely understand why Reiner and screenwriter William Goldman made the decision that they did. It allows for us to experience the character of Buster, the kindly old sheriff who sniffs around the author's disappearance. The movie allows us to see what had occurred off-page in the books when the world rallied in an attempt to find Paul. We only got to see Paul think about people looking for him. Here we actually get to see it. And with Buster, though he may look like a small-town, low-level cop, he has a twinkle in his eye and a curious spirit that speaks of a sharp mind. We cut back in with Annie and Paul, whose vulnerability is clearly displayed as Annie states that she was following him while she shaves his face with a straight razor. The sense of danger begins to grow. Here, Reiner and Goldman include an aspect to the story that King hadn't included. Annie knew where Paul was staying and had been stalking him. Reiner and Goldman didn't tip their hand yet. Paul doesn't realize how dangerous Annie is and neither do we. Paul lets her read the manuscript as a genuine sign of gratitude for saving his life. Annie is thrilled, ecstatic, and we don't get a sense of the danger that lurks below. As Annie feeds Paul, we can tell that something is wrong. She's struggling with telling Paul some feelings that she's having with the newest novel. She then starts going off about the profanity, working herself up as the camera closes in on her face and the music starts to build. She spills soup on the bed. She says, see what you made me do. She then tells Paul that she loves him. And Paul's face as she leaves says it all. What once looked like a guardian angel may in fact be the devil at the door. Buster continues his investigation, revealing a frisky side to his wife Virginia. And their banter is both fun and heartbreaking when you think about what happens. It's necessary in fattening Buster up for his ultimate slaughter though. It makes Annie that much more of a monster when she takes out a character that you've come to love. When Annie comes home thrilled with the new Misery book, she dodges the topic of calling an outside line. Despite the fact that Paul talks about his daughter and how worried she'll be, Annie deflects and we again start to grow worried. Again, nearly as soon as we meet Annie in the book, Paul knows that she's crazy. Here, we get the sense that she's off. We know that she's not... Um, She's not low, but of poor taste. 
And when she starts talking about the problems she once had and how much she owes misery for helping her through the problems, we know that Paul is not in a good place. And then she turns. It's great when it happens. Paul wakes up in the middle of the night, the moonlight streaming through the window, Annie hovering over his bed like a ghoul, shrieking at him and manhandling the bed. She destroys a plant and some furniture and she drops the bomb. She hasn't called anyone. And Goldman makes it clear to Paul and us that if anything happens to her and she dies, then so does Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Annie Wilkes. It's on. Paul doesn't waste any time, and as soon as Annie leaves, he tries to escape. It's a necessary scene in showing just how vulnerable and fragile she, he is. It's painful to watch him tumble out of that bed. When his legs smash against the ground, we feel it. He's just a door away from safety, but he realizes that it's locked. Regardless, the attempted escape tells us about the tenacity of this character. He doesn't think about what's going to happen if he got out of the room or where he would go. He just needs to go! and will do anything he can to get away from Crazy Town. Annie discovers Paul on the ground and helps him back into the bed. Both actors have to do so much with this scene and both pull it off so well. We have to see Annie's strength and we have to see Paul's pain. Furthermore, when Paul asks Annie to stop and she doesn't, you know, it's, it's everything that we need to know. And they just keep layering it, referencing Annie on the witness stand in one of the most painful scenes. In a movie filled with painful scenes, she forces Paul to burn the book. It's this type of punishment that shows us that there are many ways to hurt a man and it's hard to watch. Paul does everything he can to get out of the situation, but Annie isn't having any of it. And then Annie starts squirting the lighter fluid on the bed. Paul lights the flame and he does it. He burns the manuscript and he watches a part of himself go up in flames. Reiner and Goldman made the decision to keep goofy, uh, Annie's goofiness completely intact, and I, for one, am glad. In the lesser hands of lesser storytellers, they would have made her one-dimensional, forceful, and evil. Here, she refuses to, to swear, and she's just so goofy. It adds a dastardly dash of comedy, forcing you to either laugh or chuckle in scenes that you know that you shouldn't be. The burning of the book is rewarded with more painkillers, which Paul decides he's going to try and quit. He might be confined to a bed, but his mind is still sharp. He tears a small hole in his bed and uses it to store his novel. Paul is then introduced to the wheelchair, the typewriter, and the fact that he will now be forced to write Misery's Return. James Caan plays Paul wonderfully. Despite the fact that he's at the mercy of a lunatic, maybe because he's at the mercy of a lunatic, he has an edge to him, but knows when to rein it in, buttering her up in the hopes that she'll understand that she bought the wrong paper. He understands enough about her to know that she'll need to be treated as delicately as possible, but soon learns that it doesn't matter how delicately he treads, he's still walking on the thinnest of ice. James Conn sells Paul's vulnerability like a champ, writhing in agony as, as Annie slams the paper on his lap. And the simple act of trying to grab a bobby pin is more tense than most million-dollar action scenes in a modern blockbuster. Paul manages to escape the room, and we get a sense of the rest of the house, learning about Annie with the decorations around the house. He finds the phone, but it's a tease, a metaphor for Annie herself. It looks functional, but is hollow inside. In the book, the tension started right away and never let up. It's around this scene where the tension kicks into high gear, 
slowly wheeling himself throughout the house, he needs to be careful not to knock anything over. Reiner continually cuts back to Annie, leaving the store, driving back to the house. Paul makes it to the kitchen, sees the exit door, can't get through the door frame, crawls to the door. What's going to happen? Will Annie find him like this? Will he have time to get back to the chair? Or to his room for that matter? He hears a car coming and again the tension is unbearable. He races to the wheelchair, manages to get back, and Khan sells both the desperation and the intense pain his character is going through. It's insane how much tension Rob Reiner milks from this scene. It's an example of less is more. You don't need big effects or an overcomplicated story. Reiner shows what you can do when you create a clear conflict between two well-established characters. Paul begins writing, and soon after, Annie comes in to correct him. It's brutal. Not only is she shackling him to the room, she's also shackling his creativity. With that said, just as she does in the book, she does have a point. And Kathy Bates delivers the cliffhanger monologue um, about the old serial movies that she saw as a kid, correctly putting Paul in his place and gets to scream, he didn't get out of the cock duty car. My line reading uh, does not do it justice, so I'm just going to play the uh, the actual clip from the movie. But just, you know, all joking aside, just, just watch how she builds and builds and builds within this scene. When I was growing up in Bakersfield, my favorite thing in all the world was to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons for the chapter plays. Cliffhangers. I know that, Mr. Man. They also call them serials. I'm not stupid, you know. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no-breaks chapter. The bad guy stuck him in a car on a mountain road, knocked him out, and welded the door shut, and tore out the brakes, and started him to his death. And he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape. And it crashed and burned, and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. And they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out. And here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free. And all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, This isn't what happened last week! Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us! This isn't fair! He didn't get out of the cock duty car! I mean, you can tell just how much fun Kathy Bates has with this role. I mean, the way, I mean, just look at the scene. I'm going to play another clip because uh, it just it cracks me up. But I mean, the way she spins around in glee when Paul gives her a better version of of the story after her corrections, um, you know, I mean, her childlike glee and her choice, her choice of celebration is hilarious. You know, I, I just don't know how the actors kept a straight face when she's talking about romance and then celebrating by putting on Liberace. So I'm just, I'm just going to play it. Now, I thought I saw pictures of Liberace in her house when Paul was wheeling around. Now, it's been so long since I've seen the movie that I don't recall the, the Liberace aspect, but it's just it's it's just a little bit of a, a character trait that, I, that just really cracks me up. Um, Paul invites Annie to dinner in order to seduce her. It's a scene that was added, and it's a good one. Paul drugs her drink, and we wonder what's going to happen from it. It gets out of a, it gets us out of the room for one. It shows Paul's brains, and again, it ups the tension. When Annie spills the drink, the look on his face says it all. 
And when they toast to misery, it's with a wink to the audience. We have a montage that shows us the passage of time and that Paul has been using the typewriter as a weight to get stronger. Upon the conclusion of the montage, Annie enters the room disheveled and depressed. The filmmakers, and Kathy Bates, of course, have done an incredible job at demonstrating her mood swings. She pulls a revolver from her pajama pocket. We're reminded of the danger and unpredictability of this character. Like Paul, it's easy to for, you know, for us to forget how dangerous she can be. We can get swept up in the kind and batty Annie, right? She's so nice and giving at times that it's easy to forget the tornado version. While she's away, he sneaks out and grabs a knife. We still have a half an hour to go, so there's a possibility that he might be able to use it. For first-time viewers, that is. It's wise to include it later in the movie than earlier. If he had grabbed the knife, say, you know, during his first exploration, we know that he wouldn't use it because it's too early in the movie. But it doesn't work out. Paul awakes to a stone-faced Annie and an appropriate lightning strike. She injects him with something, and the next thing we know, he's strapped down and Liberace plays in the background. We learn that Annie knows that he's left the room. As Liberace tickles the ivory, Annie monologues while Paul quietly panics. Now, okay, um, I, I, I don't, I don't know how to talk about this scene. To be perfectly honest, um, because this is not just the most famous scene from this movie. I mean, this is one of the most famous scenes from the history of cinema. You know, I've been, you know, just like typing. I've been typing my notes as the uh, movie's been playing along, um, and I just I had to stop the the film, um, just to kind of frame this scene and and really just think about it for a second. And I I realized that more than like any other scene in the I don't know forty something podcast reviews I've I've. I've recorded so far you know it's this particular scene more than any other one that I was worried about screwing up you know I, I first of all I mean wh whatever I say about it um, has already been said you know and and I, I, I don't really think that words can encapsulate why it just works so goddamn well I mean, talk about a game I mean everyone involved in this scene knows that this is it I mean this is the moment right here you know, James Kahn knows it. You know, he shows it in, in every, you know, struggle, uh, you know, against the cords, the feudal struggles uh, against the cords. Um, they're strapping him against the bed, you know, and just that, that slow, dawning realization that what he thought has been hell it has been heaven and that hell is about to come. Uh, it, it, and, and then Kathy Bates knows it by being all the more chipper to play against the increasing dread, you know, and, and, and that creates this, um, th this push pull, you know, uh, you know, of her positivity, you know, combined with the, 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 growing threat and, and the tension. And it just, it keeps us off guard the entire time. It just, it, it does such a good job at placing us firmly in Paul's perspective. Now, I, I don't know, I don't know if it's if it's the the, the music supervisor or the sound supervisor, uh, who whoever chose the music, 
um, that person has to be on their A game, and 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 they know that they have to set the score just right. And Rob Reiner knows that this is the scene that people are going to talk about. You know, this. You know, I guess to to frame it the right way. I mean, when he read the book, um, he knew that this was going to be his "Here's Johnny" moment. You know, it's his prom scene from from Carrie. You know, call it what you will. You know, I would argue that. At the end of the day, I mean, when you compare the most famous Stephen King cinematic moments, I mean, this one is right up at the top of the pile. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, like I said, Here's Johnny um, might be his most famous uh, in terms of just, you know, live action adaptations, even though it was a uh, TV miniseries. Um, Hiya Georgie, they float, they all float. Um, that's definitely one. Um, but I don't know, man. I think that maybe this, this could be the number one uh, Stephen King cinematic moment. You know, I, I think that this is the one that's on top of the pile. I, it's just, it's so well done. I mean, it's this is a masterclass at how to tell a story. In acting, you know, in screenwriting, in direction, in sound. It, it's just, it has, like I said earlier, everyone right at their A game. You know, um... And I, and it's told with I, Rob Reiner. I mean, he tells it with his own spin, you know. Because in the book, uh, if you haven't read the book or, or didn't listen to the um, podcast review last week, I mean, in, in the book, the hobbling is not a hobbling by sledgehammer. The hobbling is a hobbling uh, with an axe and a blowtorch to cauterize the wound. It's actually a, a funny inverse of the change to The Shining in which Stanley Kubrick chose an axe rather than a mallet. Um, I think that actually both decisions, Stanley Kubrick's and Rob Reiner's, are the right decisions, uh, by the way. I mean, because with the axe in this movie, um, I don't think it would have been universally lauded um, as what might be the most painful depiction of violence on screen. And there's no blood. Right? I, I think that an axe, it, it just would have pushed it too far into just gratuitous um, nature. You know, uh, it almost feel like something out of a grindhouse film. You know, which, but while I'm on the subject, Misery, before Stephen King was outed as Richard Bachman, Misery was going to be a Richard Bachman book. So what occurs in the book, the hobbling of Paul Sheldon with an axe, that is such a Richard Bachman uh type of scene just r ridiculous violence and edge but here uh a sledgehammer you know i mean I, I think that it tells the exact same tale as the axe but with just without the gore by eliminating the gore it allows people to keep watching and it, it and and by i, I want to say it kind of makes it more inviting but you know, it, it pulls people in because it's there's there's not gonna be blood, right? You know, it so it allows people to keep on watching and it just it, it makes the scene that much worse to watch. You almost think that's not gonna happen, or at least that he's not gonna show you, but he does. Oh, Rob Reiner goes there. You know, I mean from the moment that she slowly places that board between his ankles, I mean Rob Reiner has you, right? I mean he, he has you you are as captive as Paul Sheldon himself. You know, in that moment, that whole scene, you know, that you are Paul, right? You know, so much of that is filmed from his perspective, looking at his legs, looking up at Annie. Um, 
Yeah, and you're helpless. Paul is helpless. We're all helpless. Like, we're screaming at the screen. And again, I, you know, this is a scene at this point. It's 2015. The movie came out in 1990. As soon as the movie came out, it became instantly, instantly iconic. You know, it has been parodied. Um, it has gone down in the annals of, uh, the annals of, of, of cinematic history. So it's not as if I don't know what's not going to happen. I mean, I know exactly, you know, what's going to happen. But even still, watching it, it's just there is a power to that scene. There's just something, there's something about that just makes it what it is. There's a reason why people talk about this movie. There's a reason why people talk about that scene. It's just so, so well done. I mean, you are, like I said, you are helpless against Annie Wilkes. And then she raises that hammer. Whew, she brings it down. And then... You know, Props to whoever did the effects in this movie because the oh it's disgusting to even think about. It. I mean the way, the way Paul's foot bends when the the sledgehammer hits it. it I mean I, I think that that's the key right there. That is the punchline to the joke. That is the uh, that's the moment. If if you didn't have that that moment of violence, bloodless violence by the way, um, if you didn't have that moment. I don't think that it would be as painful. And then, you know, you don't see the bending of the, the other foot when, when she slams the sledgehammer. But the fact that he is just, can't even imagine, I can't imagine the pain that he is he's going through at that particular moment. But then she doesn't even waste any time. She just, boom, to the other one. Um, and then you just, you know, what's next? I mean, it, it's just that it's been so tense you know what is going to happen next i mean of course like it, it it also works so well because we've seen just how destroyed his legs are at this point and oh so i mean just the vulnerability it's just everything about it everything about it it just it doesn't matter that there's no blood you know it's it's just it is one of the most gruesome things that you're ever going to see on screen so you know i i could talk i guess for another hour about that one scene but I, I think that i have to move on um around this time uh buster the kindly sheriff you know he he's putting two and two together realizing that the quote that he'd read in one of misery's books which is such a endearing aspect of the character and you know having him read the the misery books you know in bed next to his wife and just their they're loving sparring back and forth. It's just, it makes the, the movie fun to watch. But the fact that he, he's able to put two and two together, realizing that the quote, that he had read a quote and he thought that he remembered it from somewhere, and when he does a little bit of research, he realizes that Annie had used it when, when she was on trial. And it then, oh my God, it provides a moment that it's one of those, you know, don't go in the basement, don't go in the attic, don't go in the barn. You just It's one of those scenes where you're just screaming at the screen. Don't go to the house is what we're screaming at the screen. Don't confront her, Buster. Don't confront her. And that's what he does. Um, as Buster races down the driveway and he bursts into Paul's room with a syringe, uh, Buster arrives at the house. I mean, and, and you know what? It's, it's it's awful because, I mean, you know how the story is going to end. You know, I mean, you know that has to come down to Annie and Paul. And that leaves no room for Buster. He's, he's, he's too sharp to be fooled, so you know that he has to die. Um, but for someone as sharp as he is, he's still pretty dumb for heading to the house um, of a woman who he suspects is a kidnapper um, and murderer. 
Yeah, I mean, Buster and Annie, they, they do that dance, each one knowing, um, but both hiding. Um, and that's all I was watching. I just wanted the scene to end. I just wanted to end because I knew he was going to die, and I, I didn't want to prolong his death anymore because I just, I, I just really liked that character. Um, and she, she gets him, she blows him away, uh, and after she kills the kindly sheriff... She's about to kill Paul, uh, who manages to convince her to let him live until after he finishes the book. You know, she, she turns her back and he grabs the, the lighter fluid, the same lighter fluid that she had made him use to, uh, to burn his untitled book. Um, you know, and it's a great touch that when the end comes, uh, which is soon after, I, I talked a little bit before about how well Kathy Bates and Rob Reiner and William Goldman had crafted the, the cinematic Annie character and how they had uh, really captured all of the different mood swings that she has because it's just, it's just interesting that of all of the different aspects of her personality, when it's time to kill her, when it's time for the final showdown, she's not depressed Annie. She's not manic Annie. She's not angry Annie, psychotic Annie. Um, this is loving Annie, right? You know, this is the, the one that treated him as best as she could. She's just so excited about the end of the book that you, you almost feel bad for her, but you still can't pump your fist in joy. You know, you can't help but, you know, pump your fist in joy when he holds the flaming manuscript and brings the typewriter down on her head. You know, and then it's on. It is a brutal, and I mean brutal, fight to the death. Uh, and it's just, there's there's a great scene. It's It might be my favorite scene in the movie where he, clearly he can't use his legs, but right, he, he she's coming um, and he, he grabs his leg with his hands and he uses his hands to swing his lifeless leg in order to trip her and she trips over his leg and she falls and it's just a painful looking fall where she just smashes her head uh against the typewriter and you think that she's done but remember it's 1990 and this is uh you know, a day and age, you know, around the time, you know, and after of of the postmodern horror movie, which if you think that the, the creature or the monster or the villain is down, expect at least one resurrection. And that's what we get. She jumps on Paul. They start going at it again. He takes a pig statue and bashes her in the head. And that's Annie Wilkes. Um and as endings go, uh, the ending ending, I mean, not the one that I just talked about, but the, the very end, that, that dinner or lunch when, when he goes to eat with, with his agent, um, it's perfect. It's perfect. Um, seeing Annie come to him, and, you know, he's not freaking out or screaming, but just seeing her come to him, him just knowing that it's in his mind, knowing that he's escaped, he knows that he'll never really be able to escape. He'll never be able to get past this. And... When the waitress says that she's his number one fan, you know, it shows that Annie might be dead, but she'll never really be gone because the, that, that, that demon, that spirit of fandom uh, that had possessed her uh, lives on in all of the fans out there. And it opens up this story into a very real world uh, where something like this could happen again to Paul or another creative type. Um, and then boom! It ends, uh, and we got some Liberace playing perfectly, by the way. So, you know, final thoughts. Um, 
just a quick note uh, before I get into the, the, the book versus the movie showdown. Uh, we have a couple of players here. Um, and I guess this, this I've, I've recently begun, um, just so everyone knows, like I said earlier in the uh, iTunes reviews, that based on that recommendation there for the Easter eggs, I just recorded yesterday my Tommyknockers, which was a, a lot longer than maybe you would expect from a review. It's actually one of my longer single single book reviews, um, clocking in at like an hour 20 or something like that. Um, but I, I said that that was going to be the first time that you see the Easter egg section. But hey, you know what? I mean, I didn't label it Easter eggs, but I'm, I'll call it Easter eggs here. So ladies and gentlemen, here's the first time we're seeing the the Easter eggs section um, of the Stephen King, Stephen King cast found here within uh, this particular movie review. So Easter eggs, we have some Easter eggs here uh, in the sense that we have some players that uh, will go on to be in other Stephen King movies. Uh, first of all, we have Annie, um, Annie uh, Wilkes herself, Kathy Bates, who will go from here um, and then star as Dolores Claiborne herself in Dolores Claiborne. Uh, Francis Sternhagen, uh, who played Virginia in this movie, was also in the miniseries The Golden Years. And J.T. Walsh, um, he plays a... Uh, he's only in it for like one scene. He just plays a trooper, um, a state cop, uh, and he, so he makes an appearance here. But he's gonna go on to play like the just the classic Stephen King small town alpha male, you know, the right hand man of Leland Gaunt, the the Igor to Leland Gaunt's Frankenstein, the the Renfield to his Dracula, the one, the only first selectman of Castle Rock, Maine. Danforth Buster Keaton. Um, now this, look, Misery is an insanely tense movie, you know. Um, but there's times, and I'm not sure if it's because the sensibilities of 2015 are a little different from 1990, but I, there are scenes of tension in this movie, um, you know, like where Annie just kind of pops up, like behind Buster, for instance, Uh and there's like this this dramatic flourish of music. It just it seems almost like a parody, um, this day and age, uh, which is just it's a nitpick. I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry for even bringing it up. It's just it's a nitpick, but something that I just kind of wanted to point out that just shows how differently we we make our movies nowadays. Because, um, like I said, it just it feels if you were to parody what a thriller looks like, there's certain things that you would do, and that's definitely one thing that you would do. But regardless, the uh, the the movie is just. It's so effective, it's it, it's really just timeless. So, which brings us to our book versus movie showdown. In the movie reviews, you know that I like to pit the movie against the book to see who comes out the absolute winner. So, the first thing that I want to bring up is Buster and Virginia, or just the cops from the book because Buster and Virginia are not in the book and in the book we have a couple occasions where um, the police come to the house so when comparing these two aspects of the police 
who who's the better like set of characters buster and virginia or the cops whose name i don't remember clearly i don't remember who their names are i've talked about how much i like buster and virginia clearly the answer is buster and virginia i really like these two their chemistry is great i like how frisky she is it's just it and how smart he is like it's just the two of them are so much fun to read i would actually like a separate like ongoing series of movies where these two characters just solve small town mysteries um you know in in this nice colorado town um and then we have the axe versus the sledgehammer um and again i don't think it's too much of a surprise but i'm gonna go with the the sledgehammer i just i think that like for all the reasons that i said it tones down the violence it makes you keep on watching it it forces you to keep on watching it you don't have that initial i gotta turn away because it's just a sledgehammer and it just to me it just seems that much more painful uh and then we have the ending uh between the book and the movie and the, the book um i'm gonna go with the book because we are in paul's head it comes across as that much more triumphant and tense and you're never quite sure if he's gonna be able to pull it off and she just won't die you know and then she's not even like she's able to leave the house and she's gonna go into the barn and she gets a gun oh no a chainsaw she gets a chainsaw and she's gonna come back before she dies so um i would just say that the the end just has a little bit more of an edge to it that the book that 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 the movie w was able to to capture um so then we have paul sheldon himself and i this one's hard for me guys because i mean first of all in the book i mean ah, i mean the, the the book i would say the book wins out i, I don't even want to use those words but i mean the book has an advantage there we go the book has an advantage because we we and basically we are paul right you know i mean we're in his head so much and and james Conn does not have that luxury right so and he has to be able to sell that character and just the the little things that he does like how well he you know he he manipulates his body to look like you know his lower extremities are completely shattered every wince of pain he doesn't he does not portray the same amount of of pain the same way like there's all these like variations in in, in how his body feels at that particular moment. He does a great job with that. Um, you know, I mean, for someone that was confined to a bed and confined to a wheelchair, he he really was able to emote a lot. Um, and then there's little things just like the, the humor. The humor from the movie comes from from his interaction with, with Annie Wilkes, and we see that edge. You know, we see it when, you know, after he gets the, the sledgehammer, we're able to let out a a breath um of relief because when she sees him you know she's in the yard with misery the pig she waves at him and he's just like f it i don't care at this point you can do what you want so he just like flips her the bird um you know and, and he's just like sarcastic and like there's like looks on his face like the look on his face when the the novel um he pours it into her drink and she spills the drink and he just sells it at that moment and then like i said when he says here's to misery um so I mean, even though even though we were in Paul's head in the book, it's hard to say that the book is better than James Conn's performance. So it's kind of a cop out. I, I guess that I kind of have to go tie on that one. Um, 
but with the the I'm having a moment. I'm having a moment. Uh, no, guys, I'm sorry. I'm I'm gonna go with James Caan. I just convinced myself. I have it written down right here as Ty, but I I think that he did a phenomenal job with this role that required him to be able to to do so much physically, even though he was playing a character that could not do things physically, and and that. That must have been challenging. So I'm going to go with James Caan. And then Annie, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, I got to go Kathy Bates on this one. Um, I mean, between her love of Liberace, her line delivery, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the pronunciation of, um, you know, not Dom Perignon, but, you know, she pronounces it like Dom Perignon. <laughs> Uh, you know, her childlike glee, the cock-a-doody car, um, and, you know, just the use of the sledgehammer, um, just how much of a whirlwind of emotions she was. I mean, I, it just has to be Kathy Bates. You know, I mean, this was the role that made Kathy Bates Kathy Bates. You know, it, it's just, it's a role, I mean, with such dangerous insanity. You know, it, it, it kind of makes me want to see a... Uh, like a celebrity death match where Annie Wilkes goes head to head with Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance. And, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't think that if he has the power of the overlook behind him or not, if, if he were to step into a ring with her, I would put my money on, on Annie Wilkes. And that has everything to do with, with Kathy Bates's performance. And like I said, this is um, an iconic movie with perhaps one of the most famous scenes of all time. And it is very much because of, of Kathy Bates. So, um, you know, just in terms of numbers, um, I went with the book on, on one and I went with uh, the movie on the rest. So when it comes to the book versus movie, and if I'm just going to do it in terms of numbers, the movie just won out, guys. Um, so, I mean, I, I wrote down, I, I said that I was going to say that it's a tie and it's a cop-out and I can't come down either way. But just looking at at uh, at what we've got, Buster in Virginia, The Sledgehammer, Paul, and Annie. That's four to one. So, hey, look at that. I didn't expect that to happen. So, the the I would say that the, the movie... Um, is a better distillation of the story than, than the novel itself. Um, agree? Disagree? Uh, let me know. Write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. So, everyone, that is, that's all that I have for now for this particular week, but um, make sure that you come back next week as I dive into um, the very, very... Um, very much derided uh, the Tommyknockers. Uh, like I said earlier, um, I, I just recorded that episode yesterday. And it's, it's, it's a long episode. There, there's definitely, um, there's a lot to that book um, that might not be on the surface. This is a novel that Stephen King personally has stated is his least favorite. Um, or worst book that he's written. It's a novel that I think tends to get made fun of a lot. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of wacky ideas in there, but there's also there's some elements that are uh, troubling and uh, not disturbing, but just that that make you 
read a little bit deeper because of some real life stuff that was occurring at the time. So I wound up having a lot to say about the Tommyknockers, um, a book that I, 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 I really enjoyed revisiting. Um, it's a novel that, that I just like. Um, and I just want to put that out there because if anyone's still listening, um, I just felt that uh, when I finished reviewing the Tommyknockers review, um, if anyone kind of tuned out of the review after listening for the first like half an hour, you might think that I was coming down against the Tommyknockers, but um, there's just a couple sections where I definitely do point out some some areas that are a problem, but I would say all in all, it is, it's definitely worth a reading experience. So um, yeah, make sure that you stay tuned next week because I like I said, I definitely have a lot to say. So everyone, have a... Um, you know, a great week, and I will see you here, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places that this heart of mine embraces all day through. 